0: Good morning, Victory City. So glad that you are joining back in with us this week. We have another fantastic worship experience prepared. Um, I pray that the worship was just a blessing for you. Um, as you know, we are still walking through um, the journey of Jesus up into the cross. And last week, we really looked at what it means to know that Jesus Christ was bruised. He was crushed by the Father for our good for our benefit and ultimately to the glory of God. And so how we can, through his suffering, know how to endure our own suffering and our own affliction and our own oppression and suffer the way that Jesus has suffered. But also knowing that through our own suffering, we are being united with Jesus Christ in a life like his. So we are just so grateful that we can learn that the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just save us, but it transcends and transforms and reshapes the lives that we even live now. Today we are looking at another encounter and looking at what Jesus does in this encounter and learning how we are to handle similar situations as Jesus has handled it and to see once again how his life transforms, transcends, and reshapes the lives that we live. So, we have learned that we are not just believers in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we are the people who are bearing in our hearts his resurrection. We are bearing that cross. We are living our cross out loud through our saving faith and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You might remember that last year we talked about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, And in that sermon, I mentioned that Jesus even washed the feet of Judas, whom he knew would end up betraying him and selling him for 30 pieces of silver. That humble submission is not just an example that Jesus is trying to set, but he was showing us that that should be the mark of a redeemed life. A redeemed life should be marked by humility and submission to people who you otherwise would not submit to. In these two passages that we're going to look at today, there is great truth in how Jesus responds to Judas, though he knew Judas was betraying him. This means so much more for us than we probably are going to realize but these two passages are going to do a good job of telling us that story and showing us how the redeeming death of Jesus, but also his response to his betrayer will have a tremendous impact on our lives as well. Jump with me if you will to John 13:21 and then we're going to look at Matthew 26. John 13:21 After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Matthew 26. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend. Do what you have come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for such rich truth that is revealed to us in how you withstood the oppression, the offense, the betrayal, God, of those around you. And we just pray, Lord, that through your life, we will learn that. When we are betrayed, when we are lied on, we are slandered, we are to respond as you respond. We are to live the life that you will live because you died the death that was due to us. So, God, the least we could do is present our lives and our bodies as the sacrifice for you so that we can be used by you. That is our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the disciples had come here to Jesus following the killing of the Passover lamb, and they asked him where they would be able to have the Passover supper. Now, you should know that the reason they would have the Passover supper was to celebrate the passing over of the death angel by the Israelites in the Old Testament when God had sovereignly preserved all of them who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. This is not an event that if you were a Jew, that you would have missed. And so they come to Jesus expecting that there will be a Passover supper. And they're expecting that Jesus is going to be the host. Now, this is the funny thing, though, about the Passover and them expecting Jesus to be the host. Jesus doesn't have a home. Jesus has no place where he can actually host this Passover supper. We know this. The Bible tells us that he had no place to lay his head. He mentions that to the disciples. That while other people did, he had nowhere he would have been able to host the Passover supper. And so he can't even host it with his own house. So Jesus actually gives them specific directions and instructions on what they are to do to find a place to host the Passover supper. And that's what they do. While they were reclining together, the Bible says at the table, Jesus tells them what would have broken their hearts, all of them except one, that is, one of you will betray me. Now, while this would have come as a shock to everybody else, there's one man, that man being Judas, who knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. In fact, Jesus has done up to this point with Judas, not only leading up to his betrayal, but he has done everything that he has done with Judas, knowing full well that Judas would betray him. As I mentioned, he washes his feet. He has included him among the 12. He has treated him as a companion, as a friend, as a brother, knowing full well the nature of his heart and what he had been sent to do. He knew that Judas would betray him. The behavior, though, of Jesus in all of his life and all of his ministry Was that he did not do anything according to his own will, but everything he did, as he constantly mentions, was that he defaulted to the will of his father and enduring what would ultimately glorify his father, which was in heaven. Even more than this, Jesus uses his knowledge of the sinfulness of not just Judas, but all of humanity, all of those around him as even more reason to show love and to show grace and to show compassion. What a lesson we can learn from Jesus that when we know that there are offenders around us, that we don't use it as an opportunity for revenge and retaliation, but we use it as an excuse to show more grace, more compassion, more love, be more long-suffering, to show more mercy. That is the reason the offense happens, is to reveal to us the sinfulness of those around us and not lean into our flesh, but lean into the life of Jesus Christ. He does not use the sin of others as a motivation for avoidance or retaliation, but he uses the sin and offense of others as a method to display the character and nature and glory of God. On multiple occasions, Jesus not only could have confronted Judas about who he was and about what he would do, but because he's God in the flesh, truly man, truly God, at the same time, he in effect could have stopped Judas from doing what he was doing. Jesus was betrayed, but he allows the full work to which Judas was called to to have his full effect. Though he was betrayed, though he was lied upon, though he was slandered, Jesus does not allow it to to shape how he interacts with Judas. He knows that Judas is not a legitimate disciple. He knows his nature. He knows his character, yet it does not in one way reshape how Jesus Christ interacts with Judas, knowing that Judas is an illegitimate disciple. So how can we see and think like Jesus does in this regard? Simple. Jesus just simply isn't living for himself. Jesus is not just living his life for his, himself, his pleasure, his glory, for his feelings, for what he wants. He is living according to the will of his father. That's a lesson we have to learn. Look at what it says in John 8 and 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. What a tremendous lesson we can learn from Jesus himself. He said he did nothing according to his own authority. In the same way, we have to consider that the lives that we live cannot be done out of our own feelings, out of our own authority, but it is through the humble submission to the will of God. And understanding that that submission to God's authority will require us to submit to every authority. That's why in 1 Peter 2 and 13, it says submit yourself to every human institution because your submission is not just a submission to that institution itself, but your submission is to the highest authority, the moral judge of our lives, and that is God himself. That means... And if I feel offended, if I feel slandered, lied on, betrayed, instead of responding with my flesh, instead of responding with a fight or cursing someone out, though I may feel that in my heart, I respond the way that Jesus would have responded. I use it as an opportunity not to avenge myself, but to defend the truth of the written word of God. That is what we are learning through the life of Jesus Christ. The chief response for all that Jesus had, whether or not it was the will of his father. No matter what the occasion might have been, he responded according to the will of his father. And we know this because as Jesus is wrestling as being truly man and truly God, he has the penultimate moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays to the Father. He says, if there is any other way that you can do this, take this bitter cup away from me. And then he says, nevertheless, it is not my will that must be done. Submitting to the will of God will always put us in positions where we are castigated, where we are set aside, where we are persecuted. But that setting aside is to use us for the glory of God, even if it comes as an embarrassment of ourselves. Jesus Christ on the cross does not utter a word. But in fact, he upholds his permanent position as our intercessor when he says, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they are doing. He was willing to look like a fool to people who needed his salvation so that God would be glorified. If Jesus Christ The man whom the people mocked and said, if you are truly the son of God, then have yourself come down off that cross. Yet he does not do it. If he is willing to look guilty so that other people could be declared innocent, how much more should we be willing to look like fools so that other people would be saved? So that in the moments that we we are being mocked and ridiculed instead of responding in a way that will glorify ourselves instead of getting people together or getting them back, that we respond to the will of God and point people not at ourselves but back at Him. How much more, knowing that we have been redeemed through a man who was innocent, should we be willing to look like fools? Though we were betrayed, though we were slandered, though we were lied upon, though we were mocked, though we were ridiculed, though we were persecuted. How much more should we be willing to look like a fool so that the will of the Father will be present in our lives? Why does this have such an impact on us? Because if we are all living our lives according to God's will and God's purpose, then the decisions we make won't just be self serving, they won't just be for our benefit. That means that if someone lies on you, if someone betrays you or even slanders you, then they are responding not to you, but they are responding to your obedience to the will of God. That means I don't have to take an offense because they are responding to the Holy Spirit that is at work in my life. The unfortunate reality, though, is that for many of us, though we say we are Christians, we are living devoted lives that are to ourselves and to our happiness and to our glory. So everything that we do is not according to the will of God, but is according to our will, is according to our pleasure, is according to our happiness, is according to our freedom and not the will of God. The Bible is riddled, by the way, with example after example of people like this who live according to their will and it never ends well. Their lives are devoted totally to avenging their offenses. Some of you have been in that same position where you have felt betrayed or slandered by someone who was close to you. And instead of pointing that person back to Jesus Christ through a humble submission to even their wrongdoing, we let our flesh respond and retaliate. We've all been in that position. But you must remember that if I can withhold my flesh From responding, then that means how I respond in the admonition of the Lord will glorify God and hopefully draw them to Christ. The Bible makes it clear. It is not through sin and retaliation have we been drawn. It is through love and kindness have we been drawn to the Father. How could we, who have been drawn by love and kindness, be so reluctant to show it? How could we pretend like we were never betrayers of Jesus Christ as well? Their lives, who, those who are devoted to avenging their offenses, their lives will be dedicated to avenging their offenses. That's just not how Jesus operates, though. When the Bible says that Jesus gave Judas the bread that was dipped in the wine in Jewish customs, you gave that to your guest of honor. The most important person, the person that you are most honored and privileged to be there. That's who you dip the morsel for. And Jesus does this with Judas. They got the first and they got the best. Jesus gives his betrayer people, not his worst. He gives them his best. This is unheard of, but it absolutely follows the pattern of the life of Jesus. Jesus is reshaping how we not only view life and perceive the world, but he dramatically reshapes the way that we also respond to the world. Do you notice what Jesus calls Judas when he comes to hand him over to the Romans? This is what he said. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Oh, how these words must have pierced the soul of Judas. Jesus calls him his friend. The status of Judas is unchanged by the nature of his behavior. This is a great example to us as well. We should meet betrayal, hurt, lies, slander with the same love and the same grace that Jesus displayed. There is also a larger connection, though, to the gospel. Jesus is showing us that there is no crime nor any offense that can undermine the work that he came to do. That's beautiful. There is no sin that you cannot be saved from. There is no sin. There is no crime. There is no offense that will undo what Jesus has done for us. It shows us that Jesus did not go to the cross for innocent men and women. He went to the cross for guilty sinners of which I am the worst. So the reason I can look past an offense, the reason I can look past lies, past betrayal, past ridicule, past persecution, is because when my life, my life, was a stinking offense to God, Jesus died on the cross anyway. Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were nailing him to the cross, he submitted himself not just to death, but the most atrocious death you could have had, that of a criminal. That is all the reminding that I need that who am I to withhold forgiveness, love, compassion, mercy, grace, kindness meekness gentleness any of the attributes of the spirit from anyone because while i was yet sinning against jesus he was yet dying for my sins let's pray father god we thank you for this word lord this word has such a, an impact on our lives god you have given us the guideline for our lives and that is that we humble ourselves and submit ourselves, not only to the work of Jesus Christ, but in how we respond to those who betray and offend and who have um, malicious intent, God, that it will be through love and kindness and the word of the God and that we're filled with the spirit that's going to draw people who don't know you to you. God, we pray And we hear sermons like this, we know there is something that will happen that will remind us about this sermon, God. And we pray that we will meet those circumstances with grace and with love and with compassion and with mercy and with long-suffering, God. And that we will point people not to ourselves, not to our flesh, but to you. That people will see our good works, they'll see our love, they'll see our compassion, and they'll glorify you who is in heaven. That is our prayer. And so, Lord, if there's anybody watching who says um, they have not felt that love and compassion in their own life from you, God, that this will be the day that they realize what the saving nature of your work on the cross was. They will come to save in faith. And we just pray, God, that you would give us everything we need to live the life that you have lived in such sweet grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.